This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jessen Jamal. I'm Jessen Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Welcome to our listeners and our viewers from the Bay Area and beyond. This is Arab Talk with Jessen Jamal. We're providing the show again from our remote locations in Northern California. We, unlike many people, unfortunately, in other parts of the country, still believe that the coronavirus still poses a grave threat. So we continue to provide this show from a remote location so as not to run the risk of either infecting other people or infecting ourselves. But Jamal, as is the case these days, a lot can happen in a very short period of time. In just one week, we've seen some major developments. And for example, Atlanta police officers just yesterday being charged with murder in one of the uh, assassinations and killings of an African-American man. The Supreme Court has decided that LGBTQ rights are, are protected under the law. They weren't before this. And then we had the Supreme Court today issue a ruling which is really pretty significant, protecting dreamers, kind of ruling against the Trump administration's attempt to take away protections of uh, the dreamers. So we have a lot going on. We have coronavirus information that uh, needs to be shared because there continues to be significant increases, especially Florida, Arizona, Oklahoma, Texas, and in Southern California. This coronavirus continues to expand at a really rapid rate, killing lots of people and infecting a lot of people, Jamal. So we have a lot to talk about today, but we also have... We have, a- we have, we have a lot to talk about, Jess, and uh, maybe... Uh, uh, and we'll come to our guests soon. But did you know that Finland is part of Russia? Just kidding. But anyway, we will talk about this. Uh, this is something part of the John Bolton uh, expose of his conversations yes. with uh, President Trump. Yes. Uh, we, we will be discussing this because this is another uh, big news. It, it has been a bad week for President Trump this week. I have to tell you. Well, that's different, an, that's different an un- things coming. Yeah, that's an understatement, obviously. His poll numbers continue to drop. And with the John Bolton uh, revelations, which we kind of already knew, but are now in book form, the situation has gotten much worse. But we have a great, yeah. we have a great interview with uh, uh, Reverend Yoshi. I mean, it's really something that worthwhile. We want our listeners and our viewers to make sure they, they listen to this. It's a big, it's a very important interview. Yeah, and it's very important uh, just because, as you know, you and I know uh, Reverend Michael Yoshi for many years, and he's retiring at the end of this month. But Reverend Yoshi has been active in uh, civil rights. Uh, He's a humanitarian. Uh, He's also, as you know, the Japanese Americans were one of the first communities to stand by uh, Muslims and Arabs in the wake of 9-11 because they themselves uh, went through major profiling and discrimination and internment uh, in the wake of World War II. So here we are in the year 2020, right. you know, several decades after the end of World War II. And I wanted to talk to Reverend Yoshi about as he has been watching, like everyone else, what's happening in this country and discuss the issue of uh, racism. Why are we still suffering from racism? I mean, you will think that uh, people will learn from history, but apparently not. So let's listen to the interview with Reverend Michael Yoshi. Joining us from his shelter in place in Alameda, California, Reverend Michael Yoshi uh, Reverend Roshi is a pastor of the Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda, California. The church was founded in 1898 uh, to minister to only arriving immigrants from Japan and for many years was a center of activity for the Japanese American Christian community in, uh, in Alameda. And uh, Reverend, you're no stranger to all the changes and, and, and about race relations. Uh, the Japanese-American community uh, has gone through 
internment and I'm sure uh, many of the survivors, you've met with many of the survivors uh, of these horrific times and of course uh, the Japanese American community, including yourself, uh, stood uh, with uh, Muslim Americans um, in the wake of uh, 9-11 attacks and, and the profiling uh, that happened afterwards, and now you're witnessing, I mean, this country is going through another crisis, uh, the, you know, the killing of George Floyd and other African-American men, and then we're seeing people demonstrating. Are we just like going backward when it comes to civil rights in this country? I mean, you, you'll think like with those experiences that you've witnessed that we've learned something from history. Well, I uh, absolutely feel that in some sense we're going backwards. I mean, there have been gains, obviously, in, uh, in civil rights uh, throughout time. Um, but I really point to Obama's election as being the start of a kind of rising um, anti-Black sentiment that we're now seeing more come to the surface. Because if you remember, when, when Obama was elected, there were concerted efforts to get him out of office right away. There were efforts to to kill him, to assassinate him. And I think him getting elected spurred on the, the latent um, white supremacy in this country that has always been here. It's just that it had been under the surface in times where it was not politically correct to, to be an avowed racist. And I think we saw that happen during Obama's tenure. Uh, organizing was going on to try to get him um, uh, out of office, and there was organizing going on to to fuel um, the, the racist sentiments that have always been part of this country and continue to be now. I think it's just coming more more to the surface because of the person who's in the White House right now, who's using it to his advantage. He used it to his advantage to get elected, and he's using it to his advantage now to create that divide and build his own base for his own reelection. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've heard this argument, actually, that this is like now, it's not like racism has disappeared, it stayed latent, and then with the election of Obama, it kind of brought it out to the surface, and now with the election of Trump, people feel, you know, the racists basically feel empowered uh, to do what they have been doing. So uh, you also, I mean, you're a great supporter to the Palestinian cause. And I know, uh, you know, in 2009, uh, your church, Buena Vista, launched a partnership with the Palestinian village of Wadi Fukin, uh, located in the West Bank, uh, just uh, southwest uh, of Bethlehem. And you've taken delegations there. And you've witnessed what's happening on the ground. Of course, uh, the biggest visible thing is Israel's apartheid wall and the apartheid conditions. So there is a parallel. I don't know if you, you notice this parallel to what's happening now. For Palestinians, it's very easy to, to feel sympathetic and in solidarity with uh, African-Americans in this country because the tactics, for example, that the police uh, has been using the... Uh, uh, putting the knee on, on the neck. That's just a common practice of the Israeli occupation army. The shooting of uh, demonstrators with rubber bullets, the uh, tear gas canisters, it's all something that Palestinians have seen. Um, what did you draw from this when, when, you, when you traveled back and forth, when you saw with your own eyes what, what, what was happening on the ground? I mean, in terms of uh, what's happening here or? Yeah, with, with what's happening today. Yeah, I think um, to me and, and those who, who um, have been supporters of Palestinian freedom for years see obviously the parallels going on in this country today with the, the black community. And unfortunately, what's been happening to Palestinians is not being reported uh, by our mainstream media as well as, as you well know. And uh, so mainstream folks do not see what's really taking place in Palestine and, you know, uh, the, the kinds of killings that have taken place with George Floyd and others, um, which have been sort of routine to the black community 
and they've known it, and many others who remain nameless because they were not reported or recorded in the black community, people know that that's taking place. And now it's coming out more to the surface, primarily because of the massive protests taking place and, and, and the fact that mainstream media is covering it in ways that is bringing it to the surface. Uh, I think uh, in parallel, the, the kinds of things that have happened to Palestinians over the years and, and routine killings of Palestinians as well um, are not known to the American public. And I think that's part of the effort of those of us who are based in the U.S., um, our efforts to try to tell that story or help Palestinians tell the story where we have those relationships here in our communities and make sure that uh, their stories are being heard and listened to as well, because the parallels are so striking in many respects and have a deep sense of systemic history, you know, in both contexts. Now with your community, bringing it back to Alameda and the, the greater Bay area where basically uh, the Japanese American community and your basically parish, uh, many of them have uh, experience, or at least they are the children or the grandchildren of those who have been interned during uh, World War II. And um, what experience do they bring to the equation now? Uh, and what discussions are you, are you having, especially with the, with the elders who have suffered under racism and profiling in this country? And now... Fast forward, we are in 2020. I mean, we're talking about World War II, and now we are in 2020, and we're still seeing racism. racism. We're seeing, I mean, I mean, your church is in Alameda. You have uh, Oakland nearby. You have um, diverse communities. You have African-Americans living near you. And then we're witnessing it all over again in a different way. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of the things, uh, I've been at the congregation, I'm going to be retiring at the end of this month, and I've been there since 1988 as a solo pastor. And when I came there, it was a handful of the first generation immigrants, and then primarily a core of the second generation, um, we call Nisei, second generation Japanese Americans, who were all interned uh, mass incarceration during World War II. Um, sadly to say, uh, Fast forward to, to 2020, most of those folks have passed away. Um, there are just, I, mean, I can count them on one hand, those that are the second generation that remain alive in their, in their 90s now. And uh, so that historical memory is kind of passing with the people who passed on. But, and then our congregation has become more Pan-Asian and multicultural. Um, and so the remnants of the folks from the Japanese American experience are say those folks who were born in the camp or were children in the camp or born afterwards, a subsequent generation. I think many of the Japanese Americans in the congregation carry a strong sense of that legacy. And we've seen that emerge in the Japanese American community broadly in this country, uh, probably since uh, the election of our current president, because he had been using the Japanese American incarceration as an excuse to possibly round up Muslims and Arabs, you, will, you well know. I've um, kind of spoken to your class about that. And um, I've seen, I think we've seen a resurgence of Japanese Americans of a new generation taking interest in their history uh, to understand why they need to be in solidarity with others. And so you've seen that um, solidarity with Muslim, uh, Arab, South Asian, Southeast, uh, South Asian communities, as well as with immigrant communities as well. And people are going to the front lines of protests and, uh, speaking out against those who are being demonized now the way that Japanese Americans were demonized in World War II. But we have a much broader congregation, more multi-ethnic congregation that's emerging for us now. So we weave in that historical legacy with the fact that what we represent as a congregation uh, does have a narratives from people who come from different parts of the world and different uh, ethnic narratives as well. What, do you, what drew your congregation and your church, uh, for example, to uh, uh, establish this uh, partnership with the Palestinian uh, village of Wadi Fukin? I mean, you'll think like, okay, uh, this is something kind of like out of the realm in a, in a way. Why in particular Palestine and why this particular village? That um, I had I had uh, visited the village in 2006 and uh, had some relationships with people there. But the initiative to start ministry with Palestinians really came from one of my members who was chairing our uh, social justice committee. And he had taken a visit to Palestine 
in 2007. And actually, it was a very spiritual experience for him as a Christian leader in our congregation because he had put his hand right there uh, at the grotto in the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem, where it said that Jesus was born. And he had an epiphany that we are called to work with Palestinians. And he came back and shared it with our committee. And it took some time to unravel and unpack exactly what did that mean? Because it was talking about being in relationship with Palestinians. It wasn't so much about talking about let's get engaged in the Israel-Palestine conflict Mm -hmm. on an intellectual level. Uh, It was about let's be in relationship with Palestinians. And so um, just like in uh, World War II, when Japanese Americans were incarcerated, there were people who were in relationship with Japanese Americans behind barbed wire, and they formed relationships with them. It was similar to that, I think, in terms of that vision. And then the uh, Methodist Church has uh, a relationship in the West Bank and in Gaza, and we have a liaison to the West Bank who we brought out for a consultation to ask uh, to uh, ask her what might be the best way for us to be in relationship with Palestinians in a ministry that comes from our congregation. And she knew the village of Wadi Fukin and knew that I knew people there and said, why don't we start with this simple partnership with the people there because there are some issues and needs that they can have um, uh, support from you on and then you can build mutuality and learn from them about about the larger issues. And that's how that started. And then we, we created a, a, a wheel of... Um, of activity, uh, which we call a circle of concern and response that came from our mission liaison as a model for how we get engaged. And that was five ways that people could get involved. One, they could just simply pray about the issue, about the people we're meeting. Two, they can give to the project that we're going to support in, in different ways. Uh, three, they can study the issue in a larger sense. Uh, four, they could engage by committing to go on a trip and learning more about things or engage with people in our community who are involved in uh, Palestinian uh, lives. And five, they could get involved in advocacy because there was Mm -hmm. much advocacy going on internationally. And so it allowed our congregation members to enter into um, participation at any level. They could do it at all five levels. They could do it at one level. uh, They could do it at two or three levels. And that was the way in which we began to organize our participation. And that was quite um, a good way to do it because it didn't paralyze us from saying, mm-hmm. okay, we don't understand enough about this issue and we can't go forward or we're not all on the same page. It didn't mean we all had to be on the same page. We just needed to engage. And that was the invitation. And on the other side, the Palestinians, how did they receive you? I mean, well, I think uh, it was interesting because we started the partnership in our, our um, in, in, we've done a lot of community organizing, community development work at Buena Vista, and our principles are always in working with partners to listen to who our partners are and take the cue from them. And so in this particular case, we took the cue from what they wanted us to do and what they felt, you know, called uh, to ask us to do. And so they just basically were asking us to support some simple projects in the very beginning uh, one was a beehive project to uh, help support um, uh, making honey for economic, alternative economic uh, enterprise, mm-hmm. and then helping them establish a little community center in the village. And, and it was more things like that, just helping out people's daily lives. And it wasn't until like maybe three or four years later that they began to ask us to do some advocacy work, and we then brought them to, to D.C., to try to do some uh, work with uh, educating some of our congressional offices. And it's interesting because after several years, they told us, okay, we can trust you now. And um, uh, what it said to us is that they were testing us to see if we were Mm -hmm. really curious about what we were doing and what we said we're going to do. Because they said they've they've had many people come to the villas and say they're going to do this and that, and they never hear from them again. And so they didn't want people to be disappointed. Um, but also they wanted to to see if they could trust us also. They are a primarily Muslim village. We are United Methodist Church. There was being Christian that they needed to figure out the trust for us. And then also being Americans, they had to figure out that trust for us as well. Well, I've known you for, for many years, and I know your work, and I know where your heart is, and... Uh, and you're a humanitarian at, at, at large, aside from your work. You've been uh, very vocal. Uh, you also work closely with uh, Ahmed, uh, uh, our program at San Francisco State University. 
uh, one of the early advocates. Uh, and now you've mentioned you're retiring and uh, you've been a busy, a busy bee talking about bees throughout yeah. your life. What are you going to do with all that free time? Well, uh, I just had a grandson. Uh, he's about uh, about 20 months old now. I'm going to spend some time with him. And then I'm just going to spend some time uh, reflecting and, and uh, you know, I'll still be in ministry. Um, you know, I still have strong faith and uh, there's there's plenty to do. But I'll just be able to take some time away from everything, for, at least for the next half a year or so, uh, before I re-engage in different things. There are many, many things uh, that are, have been on my plate, and uh, uh, there'll be things to come for sure. Well, uh, Reverend, uh, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for all your work. I want to thank you for your friendship. I want to thank you... Uh, basically for uh, all these years that you've been helping also Palestinian Americans in the United States and also, of course, Palestinians abroad and standing for justice. Uh, I know you're not going to quit. I know after, you know, I want you to have a very relaxing break, but I know you're going to be active. And again, I want to thank you for coming on uh, Arab Talk uh, and hopefully we'll have you soon. Thank you, Joel. It's been my pleasure. And we'll see you soon. That was the uh, voice of uh, Reverend Michael Yoshi, human rights activist, social rights activist, racial justice activist here in the Bay Area, Jamal. He's been one of the leaders uh, in the Bay Area for decades, now retiring. But his voice remains powerful. It remains clear. And I just wish more people could could actually listen to Reverend Yoshi. Uh, his voice of clarity really speaks volumes for what we're going through right now. That's right. And so, so he reflects, of course, in the interview uh, about what's happening today in this country. And, and, you know, if we talk about different communities who suffered in this country, of course, the natives uh, in this country, the African-American uh, Americans who suffered under slavery and still suffer even 400 years afterwards, uh, Asians, all different immigrants, uh, of course, Japanese Americans, uh, you know, that whole concept of the othering, this is what it is. It continues uh, today. But he also talks about his uh, relationship, getting to know the Arab uh, American community in the Bay Area, and especially Palestinian Americans, and taking basically his, his congregation uh, just right. to Palestine uh, and uh, uh, and creating this partnership with a commu the community of Wadi Fuqin. And for for these people to go there and see with their own eyes, basically, the uh, Israel's apartheid wall and the conditions that uh, Palestinian villagers come under and then come back to report here. And then here we are. I mean, you know, for, for Japanese-Americans, especially in the Bay Area and, in, and within the congregation of Reverend Yoshi, the connection is very clear. And, and, and up to today, they still support the uh, uh, community of Wadi Fokin, I mean, they, which is really very admirable in his church uh, in Alameda, Buen, uh, the Buena Vista Presbyterian right. Church of Alameda. Well, Michael Yoshi Jamal, as you know, was one of the few people, not only did he stand with us after 9-11 with rising Islamophobia and Arab Islamic, Arab uh, and uh, Muslim uh, kind of hate that was going on. This is a man who's been committed to justice in Palestine for decades before it was fashionable. So this is, you know, to hear his words resonate today great to hear, but you could tell from the way he was talking about it, we're still talking about this 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, some of these uh, uh, these uh, insistence and the uh, power of racism to rear its ugly face, you know, has not uh, abated uh, very much. In fact, what we're seeing, for lots of complicated reasons, is a resurgence of uh, structural racist, systemic racist, and uh, kind of global racist uh, behaviors right now, especially uh, in the United States. In fact, and I know you know this, Jamal, the United Nations Human Rights Council has decided to do a special meeting. They just started it yesterday, uh, looking at 
systemic racism in the United States. So um, this is taking on a global perspective, and I, I always enjoy hearing Michael Yoshi. Yes, and I forgot also to mention his support to, for the creation of uh, Ahmed at San Francisco State University right. from day, day one, and, and he's still very active uh, with friends of Ahmed, and uh, I've hosted him uh, at, uh, in my class a few times. So uh, we're going to shift uh, some gears uh, just because we have a lot to talk about, and this bombshell, which we all knew, and, and listen, we are no fans of John Bolton. I, no. I hope you confirm this with me, right? <laughs> no, listen, listen. One thing that we need to be clear before we start talking about the excerpts from John Bolton's book in the room that it happened, uh, we should be very clear. John Bolton is a hawk. He was actively involved in the destruction of multiple countries in the Arab world and in the Middle East. Uh, he's a he's a, a deep supporter of the apartheid state of Israel uh, and has always been. And one of the biggest, I think, character flaws of John Bolton, notwithstanding his immorality in relation to justice, is that where was John Bolton during the impeachment hearings? And now we're getting these revelations, which are not new, but bring us a lot more detail, obviously. But at a time when the impeachment uh, process was going on in the Congress, where we needed to hear voices of reason and independent confirmation, he uh, gave us a very lame excuse that he would only come if he was subpoenaed. And of course, the Republicans blocked any attempt to get him to testify. So yes, it's good to hear the details of what he's saying. But from my perspective, he remains morally bankrupt as a human being and as a person because he waited so long. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he refused to testify. I think that's the most important thing. You have always these people like Johnny come lately, I should call him. They always wait. And, and well, he wanted to sell are, books. He wanted he to, sell to sell books. books. He wants to, by the way, his book, even though he has not, it has not been released, only limited copies have been distributed, has already vaulted to Amazon's bestseller list. So, so you could imagine the thirst and the uh, hunger to purchase this book. And Trump, we should add, that he tried his best, his darkness, and, and he was scrambling like crazy, trying to stop the book, threatening a lawsuit. Well, Which, by the way, I don't that. want to get into this also because I don't know if we have the time, but also Trump's niece is also releasing a book about the family affairs, and he's threatening to sue her because... Uh, uh, she signed an NDA. What a great family! Just they they just write uh, they just sign NDAs amongst each other, right? <laughs> you know. So anyway, in this book, which I've I haven't had a copy, so I have to say I've been trying searching uh, through different people who have had a copy and look at different um, excerpts. So so just to as a disclosure, we probably will talk about it in more details. We haven't had the chance, you and I, to read the book. We've had some, some experts, excerpts of the book. So, so, of course, in the book, and we can go through the different excerpts, I put them aside. One of the biggest ones was, of course, the first one, Trump asked Chinese President Xi, uh, Xi Jinping for help in getting reelected. And this is based on a conversation uh, that happened between Trump and, and, and the Chinese president at right. the June 2019 G20 meeting in Osaka, Japan, where Trump, according to Bolden, told uh, President Xi that Midwestern farmers were key to his re-election in November 2020, and he urged him to, uh, you know, to help him out by buying American agricultural products, linking. Right a promise to waive some tariffs on China. You know, like Trump has been always like bragging about imposing tariffs on China. Now he's making this deal to basically uh, to waive tariffs on China in exchange, Trump, and this is a quote, 
Trump stressed the importance of farmers and increased Chinese purchases of soybeans and wheat in the electoral outcome. I mean, point blank. Buy this from us, no tariffs, I get elected. We call that a quid pro quo. We call that obstruction of justice. We call that illegal. And we, cr- we, we also call that, Jamal, even what John Bolton said, uh, a foundation for the basis of impeachment. So one of the things that John Bolton said, Jamal, this is just one of many examples that he is going to give in his book, that the, using the Ukraine uh, quid pro quo as well, the, let me, as the basis for with, impeachment, th- this is much worse. I know, but let's stay with China. Because I have it categorized oh, okay. <laughs> on China, continuing. Trump had no problem with China's concentration camps. So, with Uyghurs, right. Yeah. So Bolton described several, on several instances, not once, did Trump waffle on China-related issues after his conversation with Xi. Notably on the mass concentration camps, Beijing was using to imprison and re-educate as were Uyghur, Uyghur Muslims. Bolton writes that according to the U.S. interpreter in the room during a conversation between G and Trump at the G20 meeting in June 2019, that Trump said that G should go ahead, he gave him the green light, with building the camps, which Trump thought was exactly the right thing to do. He was like encouraging, like as if, as if the Chinese president need encouragement. He was encouraging him and saying, go ahead. Uh, And then Bolton adds that Trump didn't want the sanction on China for their crackdown on the Muslim minority because of the ongoing trade negotiations. Religious repressions in China was also not on Trump's agenda. Well, this is uh, really damaging, Jamal, because the Chinese government has, quote, re-educated, which really means imprisoned, tortured and detained over one million Uyghurs uh, in south uh, in central western China. This is one of the largest Muslim populations, you know, outside of the Middle East is in China. Many people don't know that. And they essentially arrested and tortured and detained a million Uyghurs. And he was willing to sacrifice the brutal treatment of Muslim Chinese Uyghurs in exchange for more favors from uh, uh uh, Premier uh, uh, Xi Jinping. This is really damaging. And don't you think it's ironic that today the Trump administration decided to impose sanctions on China because of the Uyghurs? So he's mm-hmm. doing a little kind of uh, dance to try to get out of this uh, revelation by uh, by John Bolton. I'm afraid it's a little bit too late, Jamal. He has been a great advocate for uh, Im- imprisoning and torturing uh Muslims all over the world, and this is no different. And then you could talk about the Ukraine, of course, like, uh, again, quid pro quo, and, and he talks about that, and, and, then, and then he talks about that Trump really didn't like, he, he never liked sanctions on Russia, you know. Right. Trump told Pompeo to call Davrov and say some bureaucrat had published the sanctions, a call that may or may not have ever taken, so he was trying to distance himself with any kind of sanction or, or showing Russia any punitive da- uh, action will be taken against it with the Ukraine or anything else. Right. Do you have something on your list about uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of uh, Saudi Arabia? In my mind, that's that was another kind of major uh, level of detail of revelation about this pattern that Donald Trump has of supporting brutal dictators and trying to get them off the hook, and the whole ma- matter of the brutal murder of uh, Jabal Khashoggi. I haven't seen this yet, but I'm sure, like I said, once we get hold of the entire book, but there were other things. Some of the stuff was kind of funny, and some is not that funny, like Trump told uh, people that Venezuela is really part of the United States and wanted to invade like they have no option the way he was talking. Uh, Bolton writes that discussions about toppling the regime of uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, Trump insisted on military options for Venezuela, telling advisors the country is really 
part of the United States. This is what he was saying during a March 2019 meeting at the Pentagon. And then Trump grilled military leaders about why the United States was in Afghanistan and Iraq, but not in Venezuela. You know, that's well, this that is go- the reason. <laughs> well, that goes back to your point, Jamal, that Trump also thought that Finland was part of Russia. Well, that's, so- the, that's the joke uh, we started with. And this is before his summit with Putin in Helsinki. Right. Trump asked his advisors if, if Finland was part of Russia or whether it was a kind of satellite of Russia. On his way to the Helsinki meeting, Trump stopped to see then uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May in the UK. And during that meeting, uh, May's National Security Advisor speaking about the skirpal poisoning uh, referred to the attack as one on a nuclear power. Trump asked, oh, are you a nuclear power? <laughs> yes, are you a nuclear power? Which I knew I was not intended as a joke, Bolton. So, so he does, didn't know that uh, the UK was a nuclear power, just like France. Well, the other, the other, the other disturbing element is also some of the information about Kim Jong Un and the negotiations with North Korea. It appears that, based on what Bolton said, that Trump had no interest whatsoever in pushing North Korea to get rid of uh, their nuclear uh, their nuclear program, their nuclear arms program, or their nuclear power program. In fact, he seems to have given Kim Jong Un complete cover. Uh, and as we know, as of today, the North Koreans have said that the negotiations with the United States and Trump have been a complete waste of time and a joke. So what are the conclusions that Bolton seems to make, Jamal? I think he says this, that Donald Trump is not competent to be president yeah. of the United States. Yeah, he he, ha- he's made that. Yeah, he doesn't have the intellect or the competence to be president of the United States. So my question to John Bolton, Jamal, where were you during the impeachment hearings? Why did you stay on for 17, year- 17 months as national security advisor? Why did you wait to sell your book in order to protect this country. I think he was looking to monetize his experience. I mean, I know, like whether, I mean, we know we disagree with John Bolton, but John Bolton is not stupid. And uh, he, from probably day one, after sitting down with, uh, I mean, after all, he was his uh, uh, national security advisor. He probably assessed Trump and he thought that this guy knows nothing about Anything international affairs or governing or whatever, but here is one because we can go every time. Maybe maybe next week we'll talk more about it. But uh, one that reporters should be very uh, and media outlets should be very concerned about, and this is the one when Trump wanted Attorney General Bill Barr to make CNN reporters serve time in jail, and he wasn't kidding. You know, this is. this is when the news uh, leaked about a, the hush-hush meeting on Afghanistan at Trump's uh, uh, Bedminster uh, resort. Trump complained that CNN had reported the summit, and then he went on, uh, wanted his uh, White House counsel uh, uh, to call the Attorney General, Bill Barr, about his desire, and this is a quote, to arrest the reporters, force them to serve time in jail, and then demand they disclose their sources. So it's exactly what we've been talking about. He thinks like as if he is a, or he acts like as a dictator. And yeah. He's no different than uh, than Sisi in Egypt or anyone else that he is upset with the reporters and he wants just to arrest them and well, put them in jail. But but none of this is really new and. Although the Bolton book is going to be an important contribution and his niece, that book will be an important contribution, um, none of this information is new. The question that I have for you and our listeners, what impact, if any, will this have on the election? Because really what we're talking about is that you have a number of Republicans. This is the Lincoln Project where you have a number of Republicans who have come together, who have decided that they're going to work to, uh, you know, to get Biden elected and not to have Trump reelected. I'm still not convinced that Trump doesn't have a clear pathway to victory. I, I mean, and I do still think it's a mistake to see him as 
as kind of, okay, it's over now, all this information. That's what we thought before, Jamal, just to remind people about 2016, after the sexual harassment uh, information came out in videos from, you know, inside Hollywood, and he's still the president. So my, my, my um, concern, and I'm saying this to everybody, don't let your guard down. If you think that these revelations are somehow... Uh, the final nail in the coffin for Donald Trump's uh, campaign. It's not by any stretch of the imagination. No, no, no that, that not. I mean, uh, historically, probably the economy is still going to be the most important thing. Yes. And, and the effect and the, the whole imbroglio handling uh, COVID-19, because we're talking about thousands of people dying, uh, have more effect. Um, and also it's early. This is June. Uh, even, you know, when people talk about the October surprise and how close can it be, could it have been to the elections when uh, the story of him paying the hush money to prostitutes and then grabbed them by, you know, what story right. came out? Right. It didn't affect him. He it got did not. Elected. It no. did not. So, so I would just probably... The one main thing that might be a factor would be the, or two things, would be the elections and COVID-19, the death, the way, and if the numbers keep climbing, as he's telling people, go out, everything's okay, let's start uh, opening, you know, uh, restaurants and let's start opening our beaches and uh, let's celebrate. You know what? It's going to be the big test is the July 4th weekend, which is only two, three weeks from today. And that's going to be, that's going to be a major litmus test. Uh, just like Memorial Day, even though people during Memorial Day, they were hesitant and also the weather wasn't as hot. But July 4th, everybody in this country, as you know, is dying to go out. You know, people have barbecues and they go to the beach and, 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 and that's, I, I, that would be the, the real fear uh, if whether the virus will subside or will just multiply like uh, well, like we crazy. we have some information, uh, Jamal, about that a- ahead of time because we have seen in in four or five states significant reopenings and relaxing of all rules, and if you look at what's happening in Florida, some experts are now claiming that uh, Governor DeSantis, because he relaxed things so quickly that Florida could become the next uh, red zone hotspot for the entire country. 3,000 plus people, new diagnoses of uh, positivity for coronavirus are occurring on a regular basis. They're hitting major records. Number of hospitalizations have increased dramatically. There's been a dramatic increase in Florida. The same thing in Arizona. Arizona had to institute its emergency public health Uh, order, Jamal, because so many people are infected and getting sick. The same in Texas, the same in Utah, where the same in Oklahoma, specifically in Tulsa, by the way, Jamal, where Donald Trump is scheduled to have the largest indoor rally uh, in the United States since the outbreak of the COVID uh, epidemic, because there's been virtually a ban on all large indoor gatherings in the United States. So this is yet another example of Donald Trump playing uh, fast and, and loose. The, and then there is the RNC convention. Uh, I mean, in Florida, uh, also scheduled in yeah. Jacksonville. So yeah. yeah, I think July Fourth is going to be a watershed. But if you look at what's happening right now, we have enough data right now, Jamal, that clearly indicates that if you relax things and you go out. Uh, and you interact more and you don't take precautions, you're going to see a dramatic increase. So breaking news for you, Jamal, these dramatic increases, this is not a second wave. This is still part of the first wave. We're seeing all of these significant increases, the number of deaths, over 115,000 Americans have died now, over 2 million people infected. The The infection rate is still climbing in a lot of these States. So, contrary to what Mike Pence says, we don't have more cases because of more testing. We have more cases because we have more infections because people are getting sicker. So, um, I, 
I think we're headed, and I'm not even talking about the Bolton book, Jamal, you know, another million and a half people applied for unemployment. I I think the next couple of months with the uh, with the divisions in this country, the the structural racism affecting the African American community, black men being hanged, uh, you know, in California, two black men were found hung from trees in California just this last week. African American men still being, you know, assaulted and killed by police departments. These divisions, this intensity, the summer, the COVID, the economic downturn, I'm afraid we're headed for a very disturbing summer, Jamal. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM, and we welcome our viewers on YouTube and on uh, Facebook. We have about five minutes or so, Jess. Uh, the other two stories, uh, were, well, I said kind of, in a way, these are good news. Uh, one is actually happened today. The Supreme Court uh, ruled against the Trump administration's effort to end the Obama-era program that offers legal protection to young immigrants uh, brought to the country illegally. These are uh, uh, young kids that came some of them are came to this country when they were a couple of weeks old, some That's came right. a couple of months old, some uh, came when they were very young. And so, they, so they've been kind of in limbo because uh, Trump is uh, gung-ho on reversing anything that was done by Obama, like from That's healthcare right. to the DACA. So the, the court ruled that the administration's decision to rescind uh, the DACA stands, by, by the way, to the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals uh, DACA program. Uh, I mean, they're saying that the, the administration decision, decision violated the Administrative uh, Procedure Act, which sets out rulemaking procedures for federal agencies. And it was, in a way, in a, I think in a pleasant surprise, because, as you know, Trump has been stacking the deck in the Supreme Court with the you know, appointing the judges like Kavanaugh and others. It was like a five to four decision with Chief Justice uh, John Roberts joining the liberal members to author the opinion. So I think that was a slap in the face to the Trump administration. Yeah, it's a big decision, Jamal, because, you know, there are 800,000 dreamers. And had the Supreme Court not ruled uh, this way, it would have put the lives of over 800,000 uh, individuals in jeopardy. I think, you know, with John Roberts on this decision and John Roberts with the his his uh, decision on preserving and protecting LGBTQ rights, I think it's safe to say that this is the John... John Roberts is the swing vote now on the Supreme Court. You know, the, the court is packed. You know, it's basically a 5-4 conservative to liberal leaning but John Roberts seems to have a mind of its own and if that continu- if that continues to be the case maybe you know we can get through these next couple of years without you know totally eliminating all these protections that that we've uh, developed over the years it, it'll be interesting and then, and then the other ruling uh, Jess which also happened uh, on Monday so, like I said, this is this time yeah, is a, a big good deal. week for for many people. Maybe a bad week for Donald Trump and and his cabal is uh, the landmark ruling concerning right. which protecting gay, uh, gay, lesbian, and transgender trans, transgender workers. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled. Uh, this was a six to three opinion, uh, which was written written by Justice Neil uh, Gorsuch. Gorsuch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and basically uh, it stated that uh, an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questions in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undisguisable role in the decision. So that's basically part of his opinion. But, uh, but basically the, uh, the landmark ruling... Uh, extends production to millions of workers nationwide and is a defeat for the Trump administration, which argued that uh, Title uh, VII of the Civil Rights Act that bars discrimination based on sex did not extend to claims of gender identity and sexual orientation. No, you're you're right, Jamal. It's a huge it's a huge ruling. 
uh, you know, basically in 24 states before this ruling, it was totally okay to just fire somebody for being gay, for being transgender, for being queer, for being a lesbian. And so this is a huge victory for all people who believe that the Constitution should protect everybody and not just a select few. So, you know, hats off to Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch, who tends to have a little bit of an independent uh, leaning to. Brett Kavanaugh, on the other hand, voted squarely with all the other conservative judges, you know, so... As expected. Yeah, as expected, but Neil Gorsuch and John Roberts, you know, we could keep an open mind about these two uh, Supreme Court justices. So, you know, fingers crossed. A lot of news this week, Jamal. That's right. I mean, I, I think I, I think those two rulings are very important uh, and and long, especially with the uh, uh, LGBTQ communities yes. way over overdue and people who uh, the young people who have been in, in limbo because of the dark and now they can breathe a little bit more freely because if anyone uh, of them was at stop for it traffic violation right. could have been deported and many of them never been to the so-called mother country they don't speak the language yes. you know where they would have been sent to they have no family members there so it's uh, that's actually uh, an important ruling well you've been listening to arab talk here on kpoo 89.5 fm here in san francisco arab talk is brought to you uh from our remote locations in in northern california because we're not science deniers, Jamal. We'll continue to produce Arab Talk because we believe in science and we believe that uh, we need to be careful just like everybody else. We hope that you'll uh, continue to follow us. You can go to our website, arabtalkradio.com. All of our shows are podcasted. You can go to Jamal's Facebook page, which we always encourage, Jamal Jajani too. We're broadcasting live there. We're broadcasting on YouTube Live. You could basically find us anywhere, Jamal, but we really appreciate our listeners and our viewers. That's right. And we will talk to you next week, same time, same place.